a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, this program isn't about convincing you that I have the answers. I'm right. And therefore, you should listen to every single word I have to say. Nope. It's more about encouraging you and myself at the same time to look a little more deeply, to dig a little bit further, to learn about the events that are shaping the world around us, to think more clearly and independently, and then, based upon what we understand as our own fact-checkers, to move forward and change the world in ways that only you and I can. I know it's a lofty goal, but I think you're up to it, and I appreciate you tuning in today. Great sponsors make this program possible. Just want to give a quick shout-out to them. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and, of course, GovernYourIncome.com. Links provided in my show notes, which, uh, by the way, I'd be very happy to send out to you. I... Okay, i got to take a little sidetrack here for just a second. I don't know how many people are listening to this program at any given time. And, and really, the number of people is not as important as the fact that there are people who are looking for the best information they can get so that they can, can better understand the world around them. In other words, information that's not just partisan-based. It's not just about rah, rah for our side and boo for them. You know, it's... It's about uh, being able to see the underlying principles that are at stake in, in virtually whatever topic is at hand. And I don't know that there are that many people out there for whom that's a priority, and it's okay, even if it's a very small minority. These are the people, this is the remnant that uh, you'll sometimes hear people speak of who are there to to uh, embrace truth. In other words, truth values more. To, truth is of greater value to them than truth simply accolades or, you know, reassurance that, no, no, you guys are cool. Everything's great. Nothing is wrong, especially near Washington, D.C. or the Wuhan lab or whatever the case may be. So our numbers may be few, but it's okay. It only takes a tiny, dedicated minority of people who are more interested in truth than they are in soft, warm, fuzzy things that politicians may be tempted to say to them for the purpose of staying in power. All right. Having said that, I'm grateful that you are one of those truth seekers. And uh, every day I do my level best to try to give you information from which you can draw your own conclusions. You don't have to agree. I'll never insist that you have to think the way I do. But I have found some wonderful commentators and some really great news sources that cut through the crud. We live in an amazing time to have these resources available to us. And sometimes there is stuff going on, you know, under the auspices of officialdom that's really reprehensible. And you better believe that the the media outlets, the, the platforms out there that are aligned with power, this is something they don't really want to talk about. It threatens their power base. If people knew what, you know, our politician friends were up to, they might withdraw their consent. So we need whistleblowers. This leads me into uh, the first topic of the day here, and that is uh, the the Julian Assange case. 
I think of all the different stories that I have covered over the years and all the different issues that I've just tried to keep an eye on to see how it's playing out. This one is the clearest possible proof to me that there are people who are willing to absolutely contort themselves into a pretzel in order to find reasons to keep believing in the state. Oh, the government's got to be right. It's got to be right about this. And the Julian Assange case and what's happening to him is a perfect example of this. Now, most people, because the media has been fairly selective in the way that it covers the case, if it covers it at all, hasn't really given a whole lot of insight. And that's where I'm going to uh, call in my friend, uh, Caitlin Johnstone, who gets right to the heart of the matter. So here is the Assange case explained simply. She says, one of the most common reasons I hear from people on their reluctance to wade into the Assange debate is that they don't understand it. It looks like a complicated issue to them, so they leave it to the experts. But she says, in reality, the complexity of this case is a complete illusion. It's very, very simple. It only looks complicated because many years of media distortion have made it appear so. She says the U.S. government is trying to extradite a journalist and prosecute him under the Espionage Act for exposing its war crimes with the long-term goal of normalizing this practice. Yeah, in other words, sending a message to other journalists, don't you try this either. That's it. That's the entire thing. She says so simple, you could sum it up in a single sentence, in a single breath. The most powerful government on earth setting a legal precedent which would allow it to extradite any journalist anywhere in the world for exposing its malfeasance, that would unquestionably have a massive chilling effect on journalism everywhere, in precisely the area where the press scrutiny is most sorely needed. Caitlin Johnstone says it's not any more complex or nuanced than that. She says the Assange issue is simple. But what makes it seem complicated is the lies that people have been fed by the media class, whose job is to manipulate the public into consenting to the agendas of the U.S. Power Alliance and its war machine. By the way, she's linked an article here, um, that I, or rather a video, that I think would be worth your time as well, and it's Can You Trust the Media? Manufacturing Consent Explained. Now, look, I know none of us wants to... None of us wants to admit when we've been duped, right? If I admit that I was duped, people are going to think I'm stupid or they're going to think that I'm naive or, you know, otherwise just easily manipulated. But the truth of the matter is any one of us could be misled. And even if you have your guard up, it's still possible to get bad information and run with it. I think you'll really find this video fascinating. Again, it's in the, it's in the, the article that I'm linking to in the show notes from Caitlin Johnstone. Now she says, because of this mass scale smear campaign, you will be told that Julian Assange is not a journalist and therefore should not be defended as such. But she says, this is first of all, objectively false. Providing the public with factual information about the powerful, which helps them understand their world better, is the thing that journalism is. Which is why Assange has received many awards for journalism. More to the point, Assange wouldn't need to be a journalist for worldwide press freedoms to be gravely threatened by his prosecution for publishing authentic documents about the U.S. government. 
Remember, that's the, that's the thing that landed him in hot water. It wasn't that he was speculating, you know, they, they've done some really shady things, as well as other governments around the world have done some shady things. It was their own damning words in their own documents, released by whistleblowers, that showed some of the just blackness of heart and just hidden purposes that we weren't supposed to be aware of. She says, uh, uh, Caitlin Johnstone says, you will be told that Assange helped Trump win with WikiLeaks publications that harmed the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, and therefore you should not support WikiLeaks. But the Assange extradition case has nothing to do with the 2016 WikiLeaks releases. She says the entire case revolves around the Chelsea Manning leaks from years earlier about the U.S. military's scandalous abuses in Iraq and Afghanistan. More to the point, only the most infantile of narcissists would believe that it's legitimate to imprison people for hurting your preferred candidate's political campaign. Now, you'll be told that Assange is being prosecuted for hacking, not journalism, because the U.S. indictment alleges that Assange tried to help Manning crack a password while taking classified documents. But it does not allege that Assange made any attempt to help Manning gain access to those documents. The indictment says that Manning already had access to the computers in connection with her duties as an intelligence analyst. And that Assange's attempts would only have made it more difficult for investigators to determine the source of the illegal disclosures. As explained in 2019 by journalists Glenn Greenwald and Micah Lee, the latter of whom happens to despise Assange, this means Assange was engaged in the standard journalistic practice of source protection. And anyone who says Assange tried to hack into U.S. government servers is either lying or misinformed. Caitlin Johnstone says you'll be told Assange is a Russian. He's an asset of Russia because of still unproven allegations by the U.S. government that the Kremlin was behind the 2016 releases. But she says this claim is completely baseless and, again, completely unrelated to the 2010 Manning publications for which Assange is actually being prosecuted. No serious media publication has ever reported that the Assange extradition case has anything to do with the 2016 WikiLeaks publications. But because so many people heard Assange's name mentioned during the mass media's discredited Trump-Russia collusion narratives, you'll constantly see people assuming one is related to the other. All right, I'm going to tap the brakes here. We've got to pause for a quick commercial timeout. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Sharing with you an article here from Caitlin Johnstone. And it's about the Assange case explained simply. And this really is good stuff. I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of muddying of the waters out there, and sometimes I don't wonder if if some of the mainstream you know press organs out there that's their job. It's not so much to to present the facts and let the public make up their own minds. It's it's more to keep the public on a narrative that uh, is in that is favorable to the people who are in power. I know it sounds conspiratorial. I know people oh, was your tinfoil hat a little too tight. 
But it seems to me that uh, that makes perfect sense. If if you were in power, you would want to have somebody running interference for you. They're like blockers on you know on a football team. Somebody who keeps people from getting a little too close to where you don't want them to be. Which is why when you watch uh, you know mainstream or mass media or heritage media news, you'll find that there's uh, there's an incredible amount of uniformity in the reporting. There's there's a definite narrative. There's a storyline that has to be followed. And some things you just simply are not allowed to question. Or at least it never would occur to the press to question that. You know, Donald Trump, bad. You know, Joe Biden, good. And the, the fact that, you know, so many will bend over backwards to try to support Joe Biden in, in things that uh, just make no sense whatsoever. But in this case, Julian Assange was, first of all, holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for years before being forcibly removed after, after uh, British authorities betrayed him and took him into, into uh, custody. You know, actually, it was Ecuadorian authorities who betrayed him and handed him over to the British, who dragged him kicking and screaming out of the embassy, and he's been sitting in Belmarsh Prison ever since, horribly treated, I mean, there's uh, there's some talk here. He just suffered a stroke. Um, his father, Julian Assange's father, says that uh, he was forcibly vaccinated while in Belmarsh Prison. That's probably another story for another time. But the bottom line is this guy has been sitting there waiting as the U.S. has demanded, hand him over. Hand him over. We want to try him for espionage. If they succeed in trying and convicting him for espionage, regardless of what the sentence is. I mean, I think I think you could face a potential death penalty, you know, for, for espionage. It's, it's the message it sends to journalists around the world. Do not report on the shading go, shady goings-on of people who are very powerful. And I think that's the whole point. All those smears, all of those ideas that, uh, you know, well, you know, he's the reason Trump won in 2016. Not true. People just conflate it because, again, the press corps has served to muddy the waters and make it very hard for people who are busy and living their lives, you know, reading headlines, skimming stories, to really get a feel for what's going on. Caitlin Johnston says, Do you see how what's actually happening with the Assange case is extremely simple and easy to understand, but all the narratives justifying his persecution make it necessary to engage in a bunch of complicated counterarguments? She points out this obfuscation didn't happen by accident, which is why she has refuted as many distortions as possible in a long article which she wrote after Assange's imprisonment. And these are linked, by the way, in her article, which you can find in my show notes. The most powerful government in the world is trying to lock up a foreign journalist for telling the truth. It's about as insanely tyrannical an abuse as you could possibly come up with it's obvious she says as it is as it gets the assange case is so simple and so common sense it should be one of the most mainstream normie positions anyone could possibly have right up there with believing that racism is bad and child molesters should be stopped but it's only because imperial spinmeisters muddy the water with lies and distortions that this isn't happening caitlin johnstone says everyone should oppose the agenda to normalize the imprisonment of journalists who embarrass the U.S. empire. That shouldn't be a job left to fringe bloggers or podcasters and YouTubers. It should be happening in every section of society across the entire political spectrum. 
And the fact that a very large sector of the population fails to see this as a priority issue shows you just how brainwashed the emperor's propaganda engine has made us. Those are harsh words. I don't know, maybe that stings you a little bit. Hey, I'm not brainwashed. No, actually we all are. Every single one of us. And every one of us is at some different stage of finding our way out of that swamp of misinformation and and wading onto firmer ground and standing on truth. You know, I've spoken before about, uh, thank goodness, for the, for the people who have, have found their way out of that swamp ahead of us and left convenient trail markers for those of us who are following in their footsteps. By the way, that doesn't mean that we're all marching in lockstep. It just means that we're getting further away from the, the cloud of uh, deceit and distortion that's supposed to keep us just wandering around in the dark, bumping into one another occasionally. And wherever you are in that journey, rest assured, you are doing the right thing. But it actually takes effort. You don't, uh, you don't become better informed through osmosis. You, you can't get it from, from consuming pre-digested sound bites day in and day out. This is how I know when people are very serious about, uh, about understanding the world around us. I know that because I can see in how they go about researching and digging for truth. And I'm not going to pretend that it's just the simplest thing in the world. You just look around and there it is. No, you have to look for it. You have to uncover it. You have to weigh it and assay it and, and, and make sure is this, is this legit or not. A lot of fool's gold out there if you get my drift. All I can tell you is that it's worth it. To be able to own your worldview, to be able to think past whatever the headlines say and whatever the knee-jerk reaction is that, you know, those who write those headlines are trying to elicit. You've got to become the, the human truth detector or fact checker for your own worldview. I've never seen the kind of censorship that we are seeing now. And I've, I've paid pretty close attention for the better part of the last 30-some-odd years. I've understood that there's bias. I've understood that there's spin. And certain people have agendas. And, you know, frankly, I guess we all have an agenda. My, my agenda is, of course, to get people to think more clearly and independently about the world around them. I've also been known to call it as, you know, my, my job is to brainwash people into thinking for themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be a contradiction. But the bottom line is, if you are dependent on what other people are telling you is going on, in a way, you're giving them power over you. The old newspaper writer, Charlie Reese, he passed away a few years back, but... Uh, Long-time journalist, I think for like 50 years, he was writing for the Orlando Sentinel. He had this, uh, this test that has always stuck with me, and I've actually found it very useful through my own life. And that is whenever you're tempted to take a really hard stance on something, some issue or something pops up in the news, Charlie Reese would say, get in the habit of asking yourself, what do I actually know about this issue, or what do I actually know about this person who's in the headlines that wasn't told to me by someone else. See, and then you have to start going, oh, well, now, when you put it that way, it's possible that there are some things I don't fully understand or don't have, you know, 
really great comprehension of. It's just a little bit of humility. It's just the understanding that, okay, sometimes the truth isn't going to be neatly wrapped up and sitting on your front porch, you know, like like a Christmas present. You got to go looking for it. And hopefully I'm, I'm pointing you in some directions that will connect you with people who actually have done the really hard work. But even they won't expect you to simply take my word for it after all. You know, I've got these letters next to my name or I write for this publication or that publication. I hearken back to the idea that uh, what I look for in, in the sources that inform my worldview is light more so than just agreement or, you know, partisan purity. It's a habit that served me well, so I'm going to keep doing it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Just a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. Oh my word, what a special they are offering my listeners. This is food storage. And, you know, a lot of people are starting to wake up to the idea, maybe it would be a really great idea for us to get started on a food storage program. Well, if those words have gone through your mind, here's some good news for you. Life-saving food through Christmas Eve is offering my listeners the following perks. You browse their website, you can find everything from 72-hour kits to simple grab-and-go buckets to, um, I think I really like the seven-day dry bag grab-and-go pack, which is, it's, it's a legit dry bag like you would use, you know, for whitewater rafting. But it's got food storage in it. So something you could have pre-positioned if you guys had to, if you had to grab it and run, you'd have easy, easy meals. Just add water, but you don't also have something to carry them in that that would protect them from the elements. So here's the deal. If you use the coupon code HYDE, H-Y-D-E, at checkout, get a 30% discount, free shipping, no sales tax. That's only through Christmas Eve, and it's only for my listeners at lifesavingfood.com. All right, I'm going to jump into something here that's a little controversial, okay? It's a lot controversial. If you haven't been following Dr. Peter Peter McCullough, he has offered a very principled and informed counterpoint to the narrative that's been pushed by those uh, in in the official response to COVID. In other words, Dr. Fauci and, and his media enablers have a very particular narrative that we are expected to follow. And Dr. Peter McCullough is, uh, well, first of all, he's a very well-qualified, well-informed, and well-trained physician in areas that uh, pertain to, you know, uh, immunology and so forth. And he, uh, he did an interview with Joe Rogan recently that is causing some very serious heartburn for these COVID narrative managers. I've got an article here where uh, Dr. McCullough is describing some of the sinister ways in which doctors worldwide were restricted from treating COVID patients. And, and look, just mentioning this, I understand that, that I'm, I'm daring the algorithms of various social media platforms to, to hit the mute button on this, on this program. But I think this is worth considering. I'm not saying you have to agree with, with uh, Dr. McCullough, but he's been a very 
credible voice. In fact, I I want to I want to give you a quick uh, quick rundown here. Tom Woods came across this the other day. Uh, he came across the Joe Rogan interview with Dr. Peter McCullough, and one of the things he points out is, you know, this has got to, this has got the the enablers of Dr. Fauci really tied up in knots. And they try to make out Dr. McCullough, well, he's just this crank, he's this, you know, rogue physician who's gone off the reservation. But they have a very hard time painting him as some kind of wild-eyed extremist that you shouldn't listen to. And Tom Woods, when, when answering the question, why is Dr. McCullough so effective? Well, he has, at least what appears to the layman, absolute command of science and the existing literature on this subject. His articles have been in the American Journal of uh, Medics of Medicine on early outpatient treatment of COVID-19. It's been very widely read in his own field. He's one of the, he's the single most published physician in history. So he actually has a track record of pretty strong credibility. He also acknowledges when his opponents make a reasonable point. And he has an even temperament, he's calm, he's confident, he's unflappable, he's not spittle-flinging, he's He's making an impression on people, and it's it's something that the again the narrative managers find very inconvenient. This is an article from the Defender, which is from the Children's Health Defense, by Jeremy Lafredo. Doctor McCullough describes sinister ways doctors worldwide are restricted from treating COVID patients. He says on the latest episode of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast, Doctor Peter McCullough and Joe Rogan discussed the pandemic, COVID vaccines, alternative COVID treatments, and what McCullough termed the mass psychosis that's come over the medical profession amid the COVID crisis. Now, McCullough, a practicing internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist, and chief medical advisor of the Truth for Health Foundation, told Rogan from the outset of the pandemic there were a number of sinister ways that doctors worldwide were restricted from prescribing hydroxychloroquine even though the science shows it's an effective early treatment for COVID patients and it's already approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to treat other illnesses. McCullough referred to hydroxychloroquine as the leading drug worldwide to treat COVID-19. Now, he explained that early on in the pandemic, the U.S. had the right idea and stockpiled hydroxychloroquine, only later to refuse to release any of the millions of doses from the stockpile. At the same time, he explained, France redesignated hydroxychloroquine from an over-the-counter drug to prescription only, making it much more difficult for people to use. In Australia, doctors who used their best judgment and prescribed hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID patients were threatened with jail time, according to Dr. McCullough. During this time, one of the world's largest hydroxychloroquine manufacturing facilities mysteriously burnt down outside Taipei, Taiwan. And Dr. McCullough says, it seems to me early on there was an intentional, very comprehensive suppression of early treatment in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. And it seems to be completely organized and intentional in order to create acceptance for and then promote mass vaccination. McCullough told Rogan the reason so few medical professionals are willing to speak up against the new anti-scientific COVID regime is they're under a mass formation psychosis, meaning the COVID fear-mongering and propaganda has placed almost the entire professional field in a state of irrational complacency. 
He says in the U.S., only about 500 doctors really understand what's going on, and there's about a million. When asked by Rogan why so many people are fine after getting a COVID vaccine, McCullough said, well, the human body's a miraculous thing, but he shared his worries about the health ramifications of an ongoing booster campaign, saying the spike protein stays in the body for at least 15 months. If we start vaccinating every six months, I think the spike protein will never get out of the body. That spike protein accumulates and progressive accumulation is very worrisome. And again, there's a link to the Joe Rogan interview. It's, it's you know, two hours and 45 minutes. So if you're going to watch it, give yourself some time. But I think the question comes down to how, how hard are you willing to work to really understand what's going on? And hopefully it's hard enough that uh, you'd be willing to sit for a bit and, you know, read and, and uh, listen and try to understand what's, what's being said there. I'm not saying Dr. McCullough has all the answers, but he's been very consistent in his message. And he hasn't, you know, tested the wind. Is it safe to say this or is this going to make me popular? I think he has a lot more credibility than a lot of the folks at the top of that uh, medical food chain, if you will. And especially I, I like the fact that he's not trying to force people into doing something that they don't want to do unlike certain politicians and, you know, other medical experts that, uh, that seem to have exactly that in mind. I've got the link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please feel free to check it out for yourself. I'm going to take a moment here to, uh, to just thank one of my sponsors, that being the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. I, you know, I am happy to see that there are people who are relocating because they have found, for one reason or another, that the situation they're in is intolerable. In fact, uh, who was it? Time Magazine named Elon Musk the person of the year, which we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. I noticed that U-Haul, the uh, moving truck company, actually named California Governor Gavin Newsom its salesperson of the year. A lot of people getting out of uh, California because they just can't handle what, uh, what's coming from, from that state's political administration. And if you're moving to the Intermountain West, well, guess what? You are coming to a place where, yep, there are many islands of freedom to be found. However, there are also a lot of people coming to the Intermountain West, which means uh, when you find the home of your dreams, it's, uh, it's going to be some stiff competition. If you don't have your financing squared away, and I mean really squared away, well, you could lose out on your dream home. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. She has decades of experience. She can get the job done for you from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. Here's how you contact her. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, Utah, swing by her office at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, but most importantly, I'm encouraging you, reach out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage because Heather is one of the best people that you are likely to encounter, as well as being very, very good at what she does, which is getting people that home loan in a timely fashion. You'll also find an email link in my show notes. You can click on that, send her a message. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. You know, if you have ever read any of Thomas Jefferson's writings, I mean, read them for yourself. It's not like the guy, you know, he hardly wrote anything. No, he was a very prolific writer. But it's very easy to see why he is widely considered the architect of liberty in America. Very, very bright guy. Um, I still think I probably, I lean more towards the Jeffersonian approach to life than I, than I could have le- leaned towards the Hamiltonian consolidationist approach of now government still has to be powerful enough to, to make it all stick. Jefferson was much more of the idea of, you know what, give people maximum freedom, keep government out of their way as much as possible, thwart the consolidationists, and watch your country grow and prosper, which is really what happened for pretty much the first hundred plus years of America's existence wasn't until early in the 20th century that we really completely went off the rails. And since then, it, it has not been a very positive trajectory, to put it mildly. You know, it's it's a safe bet. You, we just watched here the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, that uh, it wasn't enough to tear down and you know, take down the statue of, of uh, Robert E. Lee from uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. But now it's actually being melted down and turned into, I don't know what it's going to be turned into, something it's it's been handed over the... The, the statue's been dismantled, and it's going to be uh, melted down and turned into something much more woke, which I think is right out of the communist playbook, but okay, whatever. But it's, it's, a, it's a clear thing to see that the, the history erasers will be coming for Thomas Jefferson probably sooner than later. Now, I've got an essay here from Paul Krause, found this on, uh, I believe this is AmericanThinker.com, in praise of Thomas Jefferson. Now, you may still have some misgivings. Well, what about Sally Hemming? And so, I, you know, I can't answer that for you. All I can say is if you've read the guy's writings, you will quickly understand this is not some evil, you know, henchman out there trying to, you know, twist the world into something that's a little more to his liking. Very, very intelligent, very brilliant, and I think far-sighted person who stood on the side of liberty. But I want you to hear what, uh, what Paul Krause has written here. He says, the anti-American left constantly lies. Now, that's not surprising. But what's troubling is their bid to twist all American history into the narrative of the 1619 Project, something that many historians have critiqued as containing misleading and factual inaccuracies. A case in point is the man whom Democrats once revered, Thomas Jefferson. Now, to say that Jefferson was a complex complicated man is an understatement. Virtually everyone knows that Jefferson was a complex and complicated man. New York City's recent removal of his statue from their city hall indicated his legacy of slavery was the main reason. Now, while it's true that Jefferson owned slaves, that is not his legacy regarding slavery. In fact, Jefferson was the most ardent abolitionist and anti-slavery politician in the early republic. His early draft of the Declaration condemned slavery and blamed the English crown for its imposition in North America and the filth that it brought. In 1778, in the midst of the American Revolution, Jefferson lobbied and successfully convinced the Virginia legislature to ban the import of slaves into the state. 
it was the first state after the Declaration of Independence to outlaw the slave trade. As governor, while the war raged in the southern states, Jefferson uh, supported African Americans serving in the Virginia militia to be compensated with land and money for their service in order to advance the cause of liberty. After the Constitutional Convention and the formation of the American Republic, the expansion of slavery was a contentious issue as involved uh, as it involved west the westward expansion. Jefferson took his stand against the expansion of slavery when he authored the Northwest Ordinances thus preventing the Midwest from having the peculiar institution expanding into its lands. Jefferson indirectly ensured that the great agrarian and industrial heartland of the U.S., so instrumental in the Union's victory in the Civil War, would become the center of the Republican Party and anti-slavery movement, which would later prove to be the arsenal of democracy in the 20th century. As president... Jefferson advocated Congress to ban the international slave trade in the United States. And did you know Congress complied? And Jefferson signed the Act Prohibiting Importation of Slaves into Law. But while the domestic slave trade wasn't affected, Jefferson didn't rest on the legislation, but sent American naval ships into the Atlantic and West African coasts to prevent slave smuggling into the United States. Of all the major politicians of the early republic... Paul Krauss writes, Jefferson was the most ardent anti-slavery leader in the New Republic. He successfully lobbied for two laws that banned the slave trade, one for a state and the second for the country as a whole. He also authored laws that would prevent the expansion of slavery into new territories as the young country expanded westward. And as all know who have read his writings, he believed in gradual emancipation. So Jefferson's real record and legacy on slavery, ensuring the future American Midwest would be a free land, his outlawing of the international slave trade, which undeniably limited the cruelty and expansion of slavery, and his ideals outlined in the Declaration of Independence, which motivated the civil rights movement, is not compatible with the view that America is evil and that all her institutions are tainted by slavery. Paul Krauss writes, as Jefferson's life shows, he fought against the expansion of slavery and prevented the corruption of the American institutions from slavery. States like Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota were all affected by Jefferson's Northwest Ordinance and entered the Union as free states. All were major supporters of the Union in the so-called Civil War and became America's backbone in the fights against totalitarianism in the 20th century. In arguing for the end of the slave trade, Jefferson showed real courage and set a precedent for Congress passing laws preventing the expansion of slavery, which would eventually lead to the end of slavery 60 years later. So what he's saying here is that our free republic owes much to Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson's legacy shows the real story of American progress, an imperfect but good people fighting for liberty and continuing to fight for liberty and the expansion of liberty for all persons. But since the 1619 Project's narrative can't abide by this reality, Jefferson must go. And Jefferson must go because he, more than any other early figure in America, represents the goodness and idealism of the United States our republic, our self-governing democratic convictions, and the complex goodness of America. By eliminating Jefferson, 
and only concentrating on Jefferson's personal ownership of slaves clouds his real legacy and allows the narrative of American darkness and evil to take root and expand. Paul Krauss says Jefferson is and remains the essential figure whom critics of the 1619 Project and its misleading characterizations and its lies flock to in order to rebut it. If Jefferson is gone, then the 1619 Project is seemingly free from strong criticism. Why? Because no other founding father has such a record and legacy that repudiates the notion of American evil than Jefferson. And since his death, Americans who have advocated the advancement of liberty and equality have always stood on the shoulders of Jefferson. Andrew Jackson's war against central banking and expansion of voting rights was in the spirit of Jefferson. Abraham Lincoln saw himself in Jefferson's mold by wanting to preserve the Union and then abolish slavery. Franklin Roosevelt also saw himself in the Jeffersonian tradition and during the fight against totalitarianism in Europe and Asia, commissioned the Jefferson Monument as an eternal reminder of Jefferson's spirit of liberty, which the United States was now fighting to protect. Paul Krauss says, Jefferson, until the past ten years, was a truly bipartisan figure. Limited government conservatives and libertarians cherished his views on federal government. Liberals and civil rights activists looked to Jefferson's commitment to personal liberty and his political idealism, however imperfect his own life was, as inspirational and aspirational. Democrats used to call their major dinner fundraising gatherings Jefferson-Jackson Day. Krauss says the war against Thomas Jefferson is simple to understand once you know the real Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson exposes the lies of the 1619 Project and its activists. If Jefferson stands, an America of liberty, equality, and goodness, despite the complexities of human existence, can be seen. If Jefferson falls, an America based on the lies of the 1619 Project can be imposed over the country. In other words, he's saying a free America cannot exist without Thomas Jefferson. And behind all the talk of freedom and equality by those who critique him, Their real motivation is to destroy the America of Liberty, so they target its chief architect. What a great story. What a great article. Again, from Paul Krause. It's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Take a look for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come and sit amongst your fellow wrong thinkers. Nobody's going to insist that you chant in unison. We'll just sit back and enjoy one another's company and and, and revel in the fact that uh, our minds are our own. We don't have to be spoon-fed, you know, pablum like little children. Now, this is what you have to think. So if you're into that whole, uh, I'm going to think clearly and independently mindset, 
you have found a place where you should feel very much at home. By the way, I've got some great sponsors who make the show possible each day. Take a look at them. I've got them linked here on my uh, show notes page. They include MonticelloCollege.org, GovernYourIncome.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com, who still is offering for my listeners a 30% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax on any food storage you order from them through Christmas Eve. You just got to use the coupon code HIDE, as in my last name, at the checkout. Well, let's dive right in, shall we? And let's talk about the person of the year. That would be Elon Musk, according to Time Magazine. And, you know, I don't drive a Tesla. I probably won't ever. I do think they're pretty nifty looking cars. And uh, Connor Boyack took me for a ride in his Tesla here a few months ago. And I got to say, it's it's pretty impl- impressive. You almost have the sensation of, you know, the, the, the lights uh, turning into lines like when, when they accelerated to hyperspace in, in the Millennium Falcon in Star Wars. It's quick. Those things really accelerate fast. But that's not why I admire Elon Musk. The fact that I use his Starlink satellite for part of my day-to-day work? Nah. I'm also very grateful to him, at least here of late, that he's become a very outspoken critic of the rising tide of authoritarianism. We'll give you some good examples here. Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute actually has a great article about how Elon Musk being named as Time Magazine's Person of the Year is a very encouraging sign because it signals that there is some very high-profile resistance beginning to take hold against lockdowns. He says it's a good call for Time Magazine. It made Elon Musk the Person of the Year. It's actually even a remarkable call and a great omen. Musk is arguably the most prominent opponent of lockdowns and vaccine mandates in the U.S. In his official interview, he refused to take back his last last year's denunciation of stay-at-home orders as fascist. And he stepped it up even further concerning vaccine mandates, saying, I am against forcing people to be vaccinated. Not something we should do in America. Yes, the unvaccinated are taking a risk. But people do risky things all the time. And Musk says, I believe we've got to watch out for the erosion of freedom in America. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, true indeed, but for some reason, people have a hard time understanding how someone could be for the right to accept the vaccine, but also be against imposing it by force. And yet that position is clearly the most reasonable one, the one consistent with freedom and good public health. Something has dramatically changed in the heart and mind of Musk over the last several years. At this point, no one can seem to be able to control his mouth. And despite his ambiguous politics of the past, he's increasingly revealing himself to be what he was raised to be, a brilliant and irascible anarchist. Only a few weeks ago, he told the Wall Street Journal that the whole of the Biden's and uh, Democrats' $1.9 trillion spending bill on infrastructure should be scrapped. All of it. There's nothing worth anything in it. Honestly, he said, I would just can this whole bill. Further, he said he doesn't want any support for his electric charging stations. He pointed out that gas stations don't need federal subsidies. And he's fully confident that Tesla can continue to grow and thrive without any federal support. Jeffrey Tucker says he's certainly right about that. There's nothing surprising in his conclusion. Just about everyone knows these huge bills are pork for the rich. They balloon the debt to reward political power and the friends of political power. Nothing more. We know that. 
The debt will find a buyer's market, mostly thanks to the Fed, which in turn manipulates money and drives up inflation. What's surprising is that someone so rich, so influential, so decisive to our present economic lives would actually say openly what everyone knows. It's highly unusual, especially these days. Musk is now America's most honest plutocrat. He's beyond being controlled or contrite at this point. In that way, he's a very dangerous man in the best possible way we can use that term. And Jeffrey Tucker warns he'd better watch his back. In the same context, he presented the traditional view of the state that emerged out of the Enlightenment and which in many ways served as a foundational principle of the American Revolution. Government is simply the biggest corporation with a monopoly on violence and where you have no recourse. That's Musk saying that. And Jeffrey Tucker says that's it in a nutshell. The essential insight of traditional liberalism, the one that gave us limits on the state, that unleashed human creativity for hundreds of years and built what we call civilization. Today, the White House spokesman routinely says that no edicts against rights and freedom are off the table. Anything is possible. Anything can happen. They will decide. No one says a word. The Craven, Poles- the craven Press rather believes this is just normal. But it's not. It's dangerous. Musk's warning about the government is the antidote. Now, there were a number of turning points for Musk personally. A few years back, he got fed up with dogmatic attacks on crypto and decided to defend it. Then he trolled harder. He promoted Dogecoin and gave that market a lift. Then he said he would accept Bitcoin in selling his cars before reversing that decision later. Still, he stepped out in front of the opinion cartel and shattered the prevailing view that Bitcoin is something all of corporate America should avoid. Now, the last two years have been transformative for him. Musk is a businessman above all else, and when the government told him that he had to close his factories for a virus, he balked. He began to look at the data, because he's trained in economic and statistics. He saw that the infection fatality rate was not highly unusual for this type of virus, and he was clearly aware of the harms that would come from lockdowns to his company, the country, and the world economy. Back on May 11th of 2020, he tweeted, Tesla is restarting production today against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested, I ask that it only be me. By the end of the year, he moved Tesla's headquarters from oppressive California to emancipate Texas. Good on him. Remarkable, really, says Jeff Tucker. Two years earlier, his dust-up with the SEC made a mockery of the agency. He believes he should have free speech, so he tweeted what he wanted to tweet. The SEC reminded him that this is not a free country and he cannot do that. He faced their investigatory tribunal, then resigned briefly as CEO so that he could say what he wanted to say. In the end, he outsmarted them all. Now what's happened to Elon is what has happened to millions of people in this country. He began to realize that the governing elites in this country are incredibly inept and unwilling to take responsibility for their actions. He noted the completely undemocratic methods and unscientific rationale that were deployed to bring about lockdowns. For that reason, he has been smeared and put down as a promoter of misinformation. Anyone who's paid attention for the last two years knows exactly what that means. He's telling truths he's not supposed to tell. Let's address his relationship with China, which in many respects pioneered the lockdowns he despises. Jeffrey Tucker writes that 
Musk said despite his good relations in China, he disagrees with many policies of the government, just as he disagrees with policies in the U.S. Now, this opinion gets him in trouble with both Democrats and Republicans, but we do well to pay attention. Musk is aware of a truth not often faced in the West. China is destined to be the world's largest economy, and easily so. The lockdowns of 2020 and 2021 meant that the West gave up any chance of stopping this trajectory. China gave us a gun, and we shot ourselves in the foot. Beijing must still be laughing. Elon watched all of this unfold, and it was this that caused him to lose all respect in the governing leadership in the U.S. So yes, he will maintain close ties to China. The U.S. attempt to somehow decouple the U.S. and China in technology and trade was reckless, even delusional. It led to the chip shortage and supply chain breakages and incentivized the creation of a robust trade pact that China dominates entirely while excluding the U.S. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, I'm sorry to say, but this was Trump's doing. And it was a disaster, not so much for China, but for the U.S., Jeffrey Tucker says, as regards all of these issues, trade, computer chips, crypto, spending, infrastructure, securities regulation, the single most dangerous thing that Elon Musk has said is that the top goal of the U.S. government now should be to get out of the way, to do nothing. That's the best path. Leave us alone. Laissez-faire. As you can imagine, that got a few people's uh, hackles up. When we come back after the break, we'll dive into this a bit deeper. Again, I've got a link link to this article from Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about Elon Musk, Time Magazine's Person of the Year. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being part of our audience of wrong thinkers. I'm sharing with you an article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute about Elon Musk, person of the year. And, uh, you know, this is a good thing. Musk is in the spotlight, but he's one of the very few people in the spotlight who is still courageous enough and apparently positioned well enough. He can speak the truth and not get canceled. I'm not saying the guy is completely 10 feet tall and bulletproof, but he's doing a really good job. As we went to break, Tucker was talking about how on all these different issues like trade and computer chips and crypto, spending, infrastructure, securities, regulation, Elon Musk has said the top goal of the government right now should be to get out of our way, to leave us alone. And you can believe that that makes political types get a little bit upset. After all, someone is denying that they need us and our ministrations. Well, it actually caused the transportation secretary to explode in a rage. Pete Buttigieg said these are things that don't happen on their own. They require policy attention. And that's part of our focus, both in the charging network that is supported out of the infrastructure bill the president signed and the tax credits that will make these vehicles more affordable that are proposed in Build Back Better. But Musk will have none of that. Musk responds, government is simply the biggest corporation with the monopoly on violence. And the person interviewing him interrupted. Well, can you explain that last part? Jeffrey Tucker says that's going to take a lot of explaining, apparently, in the years ahead. So for all the controversy, the hypocrisy and the mixed messaging over the years, 
Elon Musk has turned into a true American, a resistor, a revolutionary. His influence in business and philosophical outlook offers a real path forward. He deserves every congratulations for refusing to go along with ruling class ideology and instead demand that that most essential thing, the freedom to, to trade, to speak, to run a business, and innovate without government interference. That he's been named Person of the Year portends more than Time magazine realizes. Jeffrey Tucker says there's a new spirit of resistance alive in the land, and Musk embodies it as well or better than anyone else in his position. In that case, there are many peoples and institutions in this country and around the world that should be very worried. Oh, I bet they are. It's bad enough when, when us, you know, no-name rabble are out there, you know, making waves and refusing to go along with the program. But you get somebody high-profile showing not only that it can be done, but insisting that it should be done? Yeah, that's trouble. All right, shifting gears. We're all familiar with the story of the emperor's new clothes. But that story seems lost on most of our elected officials. Walter Gellis has a very interesting take on why no politician dares to utter the obvious, the emperor has no clothes. Walter Gellis writes, Many U.S. government governors, rather, all of them Republican, have vowed to resist President Biden's authoritarian COVID-19 vaccine mandates. And GOP pushback includes executive orders, lawsuits, and legislative bills. And all three of Biden's mandates have now been blocked by federal courts, at least for now, the diktat requiring the genetic cocktail jab for businesses with 100 or more employees, another mandate targeting health care workers, and a third aimed at federal contractors. But while Republican politicians take aim at vaccine mandates, not a single senator, representative, governor, or mayor of either party will come out and state the obvious, which is this. The COVID vaccines don't work. They don't provide immunity. And they don't prevent transmission of the disease, as the CDC now admits. Countless people who have been double vaccinated are subsequently diagnosed with COVID-19 infection. All the vaccines claim to do is reduce the severity of mild symptoms of COVID-19 illness. And this transient protection supposedly lasts four to six months. Even worse there's overwhelming and irrefutable evidence that the COVID-19 genetic modification treatments of Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson, falsely labeled vaccines, are directly killing and severely damaging millions of people both in the U.S. and around the world. And this is abundantly clear from the U.S. CDC VAERS, or Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, and the data that it's providing and the adverse events reporting systems of the U.K. and the European Union. In Hans Christian Andersen's famous fairy tale, only one lone boy observing the emperor's buck-naked procession through town had the courage to say, the emperor has no clothes. But the throng of cowardly adults milling around the boy were in a trance of collective denial or else feigned ignorance of the obvious naked truth. Well, Walter Gellis says today the jabbed are in a trance of collective denial. And not one politician has the courage to stand up and say the obvious naked truth, which is these so-called COVID-19 vaccines all need to be taken off the market immediately. 
All of these highly dangerous, often lethal vaccines should have been withdrawn by February of 2021 when it became empirically obvious that these defective products are massively injuring and killing people. The slaughter is over a thousand times greater than any reputed uh, deaths from COVID-19, a respiratory virus with a lower infection fatality rate than the seasonal flu, according to the government's own data. In their first four months, the experimental COVID-19 vaccines racked up more deaths and severe adverse events than all other vaccines combined in VAERS' entire 30-year history. CDC and VAERS is a passive surveillance system that records fewer than 1% of deaths and adverse events, according to a 2010 U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Harvard Medical School study. Physicians in the U.S. now risk revocation of their medical license if they report any vaccine-induced injuries or deaths to VAERS or even make any critical comments about the COVID-19 vaccines. And here Walter Gellis talks about the, the formation of a new state religion, which he calls the Covidian cult. He says, in America's new normal state religion, you do not ever criticize or question the goodness of the vaccine, the cult's holy sacrament. If you do so, you are branded to be a misguided, dangerous person, a danger to the community, an irresponsible weirdo who needs to be publicly shamed into obedience and fired from your job. The brainwashed new normals staunchly believe the COVID vaccine is highly safe and effective. The virus is an apocalyptic threat to humanity. There's genuine pandemic, and the unvaccinated are a threat to the pandemic, to the vaxxed, rather. Now, Walter Gellis says all of these statements are totally untrue. But the new normals obey the mainstream media, which feeds them lies and propaganda 24-7. It's a faith that binds them together in their ignorance and fear. They repeat the mantra, follow the science. Yet if you try to show them the real scientific evidence censored by mainstream media and big tech social platforms, they angrily spout nonsense fed to them by the big pharma paid fact checkers, or more simply, they walk away from you. I don't want to hear it. And he goes through an entire list of politicians. And these are prominent Republican politicians showing how they endorse that new state religion, Branch Covidian as well as exhibit some cowardice and doublespeak. Now, this includes people like Texas Governor Greg Abbott. He includes Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, Senator John Coronan of Texas, North Carolina Congressman Greg Murphy, and, of course, even Donald Trump himself. And yet, if you wonder why none of the 535 members of Congress, not one, will ever say the emperor has no clothes, it's because they're in fear. They don't represent we the people. Their careers, their wealth, their power tends to come first. Through their inaction, we are actively participating in a cover-up, he says, that will kill more Americans unless we stop it. Now, this is the jumping-off point where I'm going to tell you, if you want to read the article, it's linked in here. I'm not telling you you have to agree with this. I'm just I'm throwing this out there as one possibility. Whether or not this rings true, I'm going to leave that up to you. This is your decision. But it is curious that the people who are most closely connected to officialdom and who have something to lose seem to have some powerful incentives not to speak the truth. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, if you would like to subscribe to my show notes, every day that I do this program, I publish the show notes. Oftentimes, I will have um, articles that I don't have time to get to in the course of the program, but I'll link to them anyways just because I think they might be interesting. This article from Walter Gellis, I understand this This is provocative, and it may be pushing, it may be pushing you over that threshold of comfort. So I'm going to skip ahead to the end here where... You know, the, some of the claims that he's making here is saying, look, the, the, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, or VAERS, is showing an incredible amount of vaccine injuries since the rollout of this COVID vaccine. And I realize there could be, you know, some there could be some perfectly reasonable explanations. Well, we've never, you know, tried to do mass vaccination like this for a particular disease. That's why, you know, the adverse reactions outweigh all the previous vaccines that they've been tracking over the last 30 years. We can reasonably disagree, but I think the one place where we have to draw a hard line is government has no business mandating or insisting that the corporations step up and mandate people participate in something over which there are serious questions. And a matter of individual choice and individual conscience should be observed. So the bottom line with what Walter Gellis is saying is it's time for a national debate. He says, if Americans ever have an open, honest, uncensored national discussion about the COVID-19 pandemic, they will need to confront everything. The unnecessary lockdowns that destroyed millions of lives and businesses while transferring nearly $4 trillion to the ruling oligarchy. The useless disease-causing masks. The absurd social distancing rules. The suicidal vaccine mandates. The satanic jabbing of children who essentially have zero risk from COVID. The media's endless fear-mongering by hyping an endless parade of phony new scariants and variants to enforce endless booster shots. And the collective suicide of the U.S. Armed Forces, or Armed Services rather, which has ordered that every service member must, must be vaxxed with that serum. In fact, he goes so far as to say a serum developed by using computer modeling supplied to U.S. vaccine manufacturers by bioweapons labs controlled by communist China, an enemy of the United States. That's called treason. I get it. This may sound alarmist to some people, and it, it may be a bit more than, than what you're willing to deal with. But if you look at the police state horrors that are currently unfolding in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Austria, Italy, Canada, and other countries, where the unvaccinated are being locked out of society and in some cases rounded up and put in concentration camps, we have a real problem here. And it's time for somebody to start asking questions. And if there's one U.S. congressperson out of 535 who has the courage and integrity to stand up and tell the American people what's really going on? Well, Walter Gellis says, I really doubt that there's anybody willing to do that. But he says, prove me wrong. All I can say is, yeah, we've got we've to be careful. We've got to be really careful. From here, I want to uh, shift gears again into uh, words. I want to talk about how 
some words are overused and abused. Okay, so the emperor has no clothes. That's, there's a fairy tale that has a great lesson. Same as the fairy tale, The Little Boy Who Cried Wolf. Steve Feinstein has a great commentary about the abuse of words like heroes, racist, and Hitler. And how those words have lost meaning, largely because of their overuse and abuse. Feinstein says the preposterous Rob Reiner, meathead from the 1970s sitcom All in the Family, appeared on a mainstream liberal Sunday talk show recently and droned on and on about conservatives being racists. January 6th being an actual attempt to forcibly remove the government and President Trump being the modern-day embodiment of Hitler. In other words, Reiner trotted out every cliché and shallow, predictable, progressive talking point, once again confirming that high-profile liberal celebrities have essentially nothing insightful or original to contribute to the public discussion. In fact, he says it was painful to listen to, but it did illustrate a truth that needs to be amplified, which is when dramatic, powerful words are overused or used incorrectly, they lose any semblance of their former value and impact. And there are three glaring and important examples of this, the words hero, racist, and Hitler. And he goes through each one of these briefly. Hero, for instance. It's a real shame, he says, that this word has been indiscriminately tossed around to the point where it's lost its real meaning. Because anyone who serves the public interest while at risk to themselves deserves our utmost respect and appreciation. However, having said that, not everyone is a hero in the strict definition of that word. So here's someone who was. In February 1942 and early during World War II, Navy pilot Butch O'Hare's F-4F Wildcat was the only plane available to stave off an entire squadron of Japanese bombers attacking his ship, the valuable aircraft carrier USS Lexington. While displaying unhesitating bravery and unerring marksmanship, or while ignoring withering defensive machine gun fire from the enemy planes, O'Hare is credited with shooting down five Japanese bombers and chasing off the rest all within a matter of a few minutes. Actions that single-handedly saved his virtually irreplaceable ship and earned him the Medal of Honor. So the next time you fly into Chicago's busy O'Hare International Airport, you'll know how it got its name. That's heroism. Let's talk about racist. In the early 20th century, there was tremendous racism against blacks. There was still that racism. And the contention here is that this racism was even worse than what occurred earlier in the 18th and 19th centuries during the slave era. Now, by 1900, the Civil War had been over for decades. Blacks were supposed to be fully equal citizens, and the country had advanced quite far technologically since 1865, especially in agriculture, to the point that large amounts of raw manual labor that had been necessary and thus fueled the rise of a slave workforce, they were no longer needed in farming to anywhere near the same degree. The United States had become a fairly mechanized and automated society with modern factories, military and civilian aircraft, sophisticated seagoing ships, large private ownership of cars, widespread radio usage, major league sports stadiums, movie theaters, and the like. There was absolutely no reason, economically or socially, why black Americans shouldn't have been able to participate fully in daily American life, same as whites. Unlike the manual farming needs of the 1700s and 1800s that drove slave ownership and the mistreatment of blacks, the cause of their continued mistreatment was pure societal meanness and prejudice. 
not some misplaced rationalization of economic necessity. That made the racism of the 1900s even worse or even more inexcusable. But now he says the term has been diluted to the point of meaninglessness. If one bases education, admissions, and employment on merit and ability rather than racial quotas, why, you're a racist. Make an innocent joke, and you're a racist. If entertainment awards or other industry recognitions don't adhere to a strict formula of ethic and gender proportion, then you're a racist. And this is at least equally important. It only counts as racism if it discriminates against a minority. Discrimination against whites, especially white males, is allowed, if not welcomed and cheered, because of whites' many centuries of undeserved white privilege. So the term racist has lost its meaning, lost its legitimacy. Then there's the word Hitler. The events and conditions that made Hitler's emergence possible and led to World War II is a long, complicated topic more than worthy of its own separate, in-depth analysis. But in very simplistic terms, the particularly harsh punishment and reparations imposed on Germany after World War I ended in 1918 absolutely ruined that country. Under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, German recovery from World War I was essentially impossible. And afraid of a German militaristic resurgence, the Allied victors put severe restrictions on Germany's economy, particularly their manufacturing sector. So for the average person, life in post-World War I Germany was a nightmare. Clamoring for hope, for the slimmest promise of an end to their national ordeal, Germany was ripe for a charismatic leader promising to restore Germany's former affluence and power. A leader who could convincingly blame others for Germany's hellish predicament and who vowed vengeance on those responsible. Coming to power in 1933, Adolf Hitler filled that vacuum. The person who'd make everything right again in Germany, the one who would lead Germany to new heights of glory and national wealth. His fanatical hyperbolic speeches moved the national mood to back his aim of world dominance and set in motion the events that led to World War II from 1939 to 1945. It was a war that resulted in over 40 million deaths, unspeakable atrocities in the name of national ambitions, and the reordering of global boundaries and relationships, the majority of which are still in effect to this day. As the main catalyst of World War II and its incomprehensible horrors, Hitler occupies a lone place in history. No ignorant, off-the-cuff remarks likening a current political figure to him can even remotely be thought of as appropriate or accurate in any way. To call an average modern-day politician Hitler simply because of a policy or verbal stylistic disagreement eviscerates the memory of Hitler's unsurpassed evil and betrays the depths of the speaker's astonishing callowness. Unfortunately, the words hero, racist, and Hitler have lost their significance, their weight, their import. Luckily, this word hasn't. That word is idiots. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And welcome back. Final segment of the show today. Got a couple of things I wanted to touch on. I'm going to start with this one just because this one's a little warmer and fuzzier. And that is taking Christmas seriously. I don't know what it is about this year, but uh, maybe it's just the strain and stress of the past couple of years that's accumulated. But this year I have found myself very consciously focusing in 
on this Christmas season. And, and, and much more so than in years past. Now, I want to assure you the commercial trappings of Christmas are fun. I love them, too. But Judge Andrew Napolitano says taking Christmas seriously isn't just a matter of singing along with Christmas carols and giving gifts. It's, he says it's more a matter of humility, charity, and a willingness to submit to God's will. I thought this was an interesting take. He says we all know that God works in mysterious ways. Last weekend, two friends and I were deeply moved when we saw the theatrical production of Charles Dickens' Dickens, rather, A Christmas Carol. Now, this is the famous and popular tale of the transformation and redemption of Ebenezer Scrooge from a rasping, grasping old miser into a lovable, generous old man who, late in life, becomes determined to make amends for all his extreme selfishness and his public denunciations of charity. After tossing and turning in bed Christmas Eve night, during which he has dreams showing self-imposed loneliness in his youth, showing present suffering he could easily alleviate, and showing future rejoicing and mockery at his death, he awakes on Christmas morning a new man. He immediately parts with some of his wealth to the very people and institutions he formerly rejected. He makes amends with relatives he had ignored, and his heart swells with joy, a joy he had never known. It was a joy his riches never bought him. Now, Napolitano says in the first production, in the production we saw, Scrooge gave numerous soliloquies in which he bared his soul, at first condemning the poor for being useless. Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? And then embracing them. Now, this is, of course, fiction, yet it's based on the teachings of Jesus Christ that one can, with the firm purpose of amendment, turn to God and love him at any time in one's life, no matter one's past. In one of his final soliloquies, Scrooge questions whether he has the bravery to become a new man. Well, of course he does, and the remainder of his life is changed for the good. Napolitano says, I've read A Christmas Carol a half dozen times, and I've seen many theatrical and motion picture renditions of it. He says, the last two times I saw this production, I was moved deeply by the bravery comment. As Scrooge approaches the end of his old life with fear and trembling, he he embraces his new life with generosity and joy. However, it's not easy. He must summon much bravery. Now, while watching this theatrical transformation, he says, it occurred to me that our Lord and Savior demonstrated extraordinary bravery when he took on human form. Taking Christmas seriously means believing that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by an act of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Now, because Jesus is both the second person of the Blessed Trinity and was born of a woman, he is true God and true man. His nature, the hypostatic union of God and human flesh, is not only unique in all existence and in all time, it is inseparable. Thus, he says, through the miracle of transubstantiation, which Christ performs at every Mass through the instrumentality of a Catholic priest, he is physically present. Taking Christmas seriously means that the Holy Eucharist is not a representation of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ. It is his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And Napolitano says, all of this came about because God the Father, the first person of the Blessed Trinity, chose a young Jewish girl in Palestine to be the mother of his son 2,000 years ago. And the girl, the Blessed Virgin Mary, said, yes. Now, Judge Napolitano says, Dickens doesn't get into the theology of Christ's birth, but he emphasizes the value of charity to human happiness and eternal salvation. 
the word charity comes from the Latin caritas, which means heart. Because charity is giving from your heart, it is impossible to be charitable with someone else's assets because that's not giving from the giver's heart. So when the government claims it's being charitable with your money, it's looking for political support from those who have received what it has taken from you. Now, that's not charity. Charity is freely given, not governmentally taken. Of course, the greatest charity is laying down one's life for one's friends. Taking Christmas seriously means recognizing not only Jesus' virgin birth, not only his hypostatic union, not only his love of humanity, but also his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, back to bravery. Napolitano says, Jesus, who is God, spent the nine months preceding his birth as a baby in Mary's womb. Those who believe that the baby in a mother's womb is not a person do not take Christmas seriously. What do they think Jesus was in Mary's womb? The second person of the Blessed Trinity? True God and true man, or just a hunk of flesh? He was God in the womb, human and divine, and very much a person. Taking Christmas seriously means rejecting abortion in all of its forms, because it is the killing of an innocent person. Jesus had the bravery to take Mary seriously, that she'd keep him in her womb until birth and then raise him to adulthood so he could save the world from sin and interior darkness. Taking Christmas seriously means recognizing that Jesus is, as the late great spiritual writer Dom Eugene Boylan called him, the tremendous, this tremendous lover, that he came to call sinners, not to the just, that he loves all, forbears all, forgives all, and remains with all. Taking Christmas seriously means that by embracing his cross, by denying oneself and being charitable to others, we can rise from the dead as he did. Taking Christmas seriously means humility, charity, and an abandonment to his will. God does work in mysterious ways and often through strange people, says Judge Napolitano. Taking Christmas seriously is the lesson of a Christmas carol. Through Scrooge, we see that it's never too late to love God and to show that love through our, that love through our hearts by loving others. And the internal joy that comes from giving overwhelms the fleeting joy that comes from keeping. Okay, he covered a lot of territory there, but, uh, you know, especially if you're Catholic, I bet, uh, I bet this was one of the better commentaries you've heard in a while. I don't know what it is about this Christmas season, but... For some reason, I'm I'm really keyed in on trying to to tap into that that authentic meaning behind it, and I and I won't turn this into a Christmas devotional at this point, but I will tell you that it wasn't always so. There there were times in my life where Christmas was not something that uh, that I put a high priority on. In fact, if I could be so bold, there was a there was a period of about four or five years where I really hated Christmas. And this had more to do with, you know, the, um, the emotional fallout of my dad passed away at Christmas time. And, uh, you know, if you've ever lost a loved one during the holiday season, it, it kind of leaves a mark. You, you associate, you know, the intense decorations and festivities and all the trappings of the holiday season. At least to me, they just kind of served as a reminder that, oh, yeah, this is, this is when, you know, you lost your dad. And I was bitter. I'm ashamed at how bitter I was about Christmas. And I tried to keep it, uh, I, I tried to tone it down. I tried not to be the wet blanket, but 
every Christmas carol that I heard, every Christmas tree that I looked at, and just all the excitement um, just seemed like mockery to me. That was my own, you know, broken heart trying to to uh, justify why I was upset over something I, I, I couldn't possibly change as far as, you know, I couldn't bring my dad back. And I guess the, the turning point for me was uh, I went and watched this this quaint little show called The Forgotten Carols. Many of my listeners will be familiar with this. Those who haven't seen it, there's a wonderful movie that's actually been done about it, and, and it's, it's very, very good. But here's the thing that shifted my thinking. I went to watch a performance of The Forgotten Carols, I guess it would have been about 26 years ago. Sat there, and I, I went in there cynical. I was fully like, oh boy, whoop de doo it's a Christmas show. But, you know, my wife and I had tickets, and I was like, let's go. Let's see what it's about. It told the Christmas story, but from a slightly different angle. It told the Christmas story through the eyes of the innkeeper who turned away Mary and Joseph, uh, through the eyes of a shepherd who actually slept through the angel's annunciation of the birth of the Christ child, and through other little key players throughout uh, history that uh, were, were lesser known in the Christmas story. Through it all came this incredible message of divine love for each and every one of us. And as, as weird as it may sound, that message hit me squarely as I sat there watching that program. I am not ashamed to tell you, you know, the tears flowed as I kind of reconnected for the first time in many years with Christmas. And I walked out of that auditorium truly changed, like from the heart on. I'm not looking for that kind of change right now, but I'm definitely focusing on what I realized about Christmas. And I suggest maybe you should too. This is The Brian Hyde Show.